my job is not to decide if your value is more worthy than yours or to decide that your love language is more worthy than your love language. Like that's not my job. And I usually explain it in this way. If you were with another person on the planet, these things might not be a problem because they're not a problem. Before you met each other, they weren't a problem, right? Like you're mad at your husband for leaving his socks everywhere, but newsflash until the age of 35, he lived leaving his socks everywhere. (laughs) And like, he's, it genuinely is like, okay for him to do this. So I'm not going to take a side saying like, you shouldn't leave socks on the floor because he survived or you're annoyed with your partner because she um, needs to get things done all the time and never chills. Like newsflash lived her life the whole time this way. And it's always been okay. The problem is, is the way that you live together and you're not coordinating together. You're not considering each other. It's not about making you different people. It's about figuring out how do you become more considerate, loving people to each other. Hey friends, welcome to The Good Life with Michelle Lamoureux, a show for women in midlife who want to live happier, healthier, and more meaningful lives. I'm your host, Michelle Lamoureux, a self-love coach and the author of Design a Life You Love, and together we're going to be doing just that. Each week, I bring on world-class experts, best-selling authors, leading entrepreneurs, and also do solo casts with the intention of inviting you to get connected to what you really desire from your life. This show is produced with love every week. There's inspiration and actionable tips in every episode because I want to see women playing a starring role in their lives instead of living on the sidelines. Be sure to join the Good Life Community newsletter over at thegoodlifecoach.com for more inspiration and tips to live your best midlife. And make sure you're following the show on your favorite podcast player. I'm so glad that you're here. Hey friends, it's Michelle Lamoureux and welcome back to the show. Today I've got a really interesting conversation lined up for you. We're going to talk about how to maintain a healthy relationship with your partner. Joining us today is Elizabeth Earnshaw, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified Gottman therapist, a clinical fellow of the AAMFT and the author of I Want This to Work an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age. Liz sees couples and trains therapists at a Better Life Therapy in Pennsylvania. And in addition to hosting a relationship advice segment on iHeartRadio podcast, she's often quoted in the New York Times and in other media. And I'm so excited to have her expertise on the show. Welcome, Liz. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, I've not had someone on yet to discuss specifically relationships, marriage, how to thrive in your marriage, especially after many years. And uh, it's important because we're going through so many transitions. I find, you know, now that I'm in my 50s, you know, you have the friends who um, are navigating maybe a divorce or one or both partners have gone through cancer or, you know, there's, or your kids are leaving the house. There's so many things happening uh, or you're dealing with taking care of your aging parents. And it's like, there's all these things and you've got this partner that maybe you met like with my husband 22 years ago and you want to stay connected to that person. And um, it's not always easy to figure out how to, to fit everything in that you care about. So I'm really happy to have your expertise on the show today. I'm happy to be here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, because I know you, I read on your uh, bio that you had launched your practice, was it like 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been a therapist for about 14 years now. Um, prior to that, I was an educator, but I was terrible at teaching. <laughs> so I left that route um, because I realized I'm much better with being with people in a smaller group setting and kind of working with them on that more intimate level, which works really well for therapy, obviously. Um, And, you know, in the, in the beginning stages, I worked with families. And so I worked with parents and their kids. 
And then since then, I've kind of moved towards working mostly with couples. Um, and I have owned a practice for the past 10 years in it started in Philadelphia. We're in several states now, which is great. And we really focus on relational issues, even if that means that somebody's coming in by themselves. Um, but trying to figure out, you know, like who are you in relation to other people and what's going on in your relationships and how can we make that all feel better? Yeah, that's interesting because when you think of like there's couples therapy, but it doesn't mean that one person out of the couple can't be going to get support. I actually didn't think about that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have people come in um, to get support so that they can think through, like, what do I want to do here? Do I want to stay in the relationship? Do I want to leave the relationship? We have people come in because they want to take accountability for their part. So they might recognize, you know, I tend to get really activated and scream at my partner. I want to work on that and figure out what I could do better. Or I don't speak up for myself. I want to learn how to speak up for myself. Um, But also people come in for things that aren't just romantic. They come in to talk about how they can build relationships with their friends or their child has become estranged and they want to figure out what they can do to mend the relationship. So yes, people come in as a group, but people also come in by themselves to figure out what to do. Love it. And so for the purpose of this conversation, we are going to be talking partnership relationship and keeping it healthy and sustained or understanding what it might look like if, you know, that's not viable as well. So I'm curious, what are some of the most common reasons couples come in to see you? There must be some themes that show up. Yeah. So people are actually surprised with this answer because I think everyone always thinks it's like, it must be cheating (laughs) or something like that. It's got to be like this big thing. Right. well, yes, there, you know, people do come in after some sort of infidelity sometimes. People mostly come in for what I call like run of the mill life issues that they're struggling to know how to navigate. And so usually it's some sort of stressor or transition point. They don't recognize it as that necessarily, right? So they're coming in and they're saying, we don't have sex anymore. We're not connected. We yell at each other. We bicker. We're bored. Um, But when we really look at it, it's usually that at some point in the relationship, whether it was recently or years ago, there was some sort of like stressor and transition. Mm -hmm. It might have been having kids 15 years ago. Um, It might have been a big move. It might have been someone's career shift. It might have been changes in substance use, like maybe you used to party a lot together and now you're not drinkers anymore and you don't know what to do in your relationship. Um, But usually that's what people are actually coming in for. The relationship changed because something else changed and they didn't know how to navigate that very well. Mm, So interesting. Now, do people tend to come to you when things are really bad versus earlier in the process? There's a mix. So I would say that the trend is that younger couples come in very early. Mm -hmm. Um, Couples who are 40 plus, they like wait until all hell has broken loose (laughs) and then they're like, okay, fine, we'll we'll do this. And that's obviously because there is such a difference in the way therapy is talked about for somebody in their twenties. You know, I have couples who are like 22, they're dating in college and they come in and see me. And, um, I even am like, wow, that's like such a different generational difference from me. And I'm not that much older than them. Um, So I have these really young couples and they come in. um, I had a couple yesterday and they're like, hey, like we're great. We just want to come in because we're thinking of having kids and we want you to tell us, is there anything about like our personality differences we should pay attention to? What should we do? The couples who I get who have been together a long time, there's usually a lot more that's happened. I mean, they've been together a long time. Yeah, but there's history. There's history. <laughs> there's gone life. down. Yeah. I mean, 22, there's life. <laughs> there's not like stuff hasn't gone down at the same level yeah. down, you know, as, as you age. And so they have history and often haven't tried anything yet. And yes. there's kind of a lot of individualized approaches where, for years, like one partner was thinking, if I just try harder, if I just support their career more, if I just take care of the kids or I'm friendly or the other partner's thinking, if I make more money, they'll be happier with me. Or if I do this thing, they'll be happier with me. And there's not like a lot of integration 
around how to fix things together. And so that's yeah. usually, that's usually where I end up seeing them. Yeah. That is kind of what I thought you were going to say is think, you know, as, as people have been yeah. together a long time, if, if it's not something that they've done in the past, you know, yeah. one partner particularly might be more resistant to it anyway. Do you find that, that one partner's like, yeah, we really should do this. And the other's like, we don't need this. Like, I don't want anyone in my private life. Yeah. And, you know, research actually shows that too. So that isn't just anecdotal. So yeah. research shows that um, the tendency is that when there's a problem, the female partner tends to bring it up for many years, close to the problem starting, right? So um, if you think about somebody who's in like their fifties, let's say part of the female partner, if there is a, if there is a female partner might have brought this up when they were 26, you know, after the babies were born, they might've said like, I don't know, I, I feel disconnected. Do you think like we could figure out how to do this together? Can we get some help with parenting together? I feel like we're not on the right page. And their partner will say no for a long time, hmm. partner usually. And the the reason for this there is is social, right? Like men tend to think that their role is to solve problems. So it's like, if you're making me go to somebody else because we have a problem, it must mean the problem is so big that it can't be fixed or it's going to shame me or something like that. So I do not want to do that. I'm going to solve it on my own. And if you're telling me I can't solve it on my own, then we must be a failure. And so for many years, there's like, hey, we should get help. Something's wrong, da, 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 da. What usually then tends to happen is as that goes on, the female partner actually kind of gives up. They're like, hmm. I don't have energy to do this anymore. And they start to lean into their own lives. They're like, I'll spend time with my friends. I'll take, you know, our daughter. I'll go spend time with our daughter at college. I'll do all of these things. Um, and then, you know, the other partner's like, wait, there is a problem. And so the, interestingly enough, the couples who wait a long time, it's actually usually the male partner who brings them in. Interesting. Cause at that point they're, then they finally see the problem. They finally see the problem. They're older and more mature and maybe don't have as much of like an ego in their way. Yeah. So they're, um, yeah. Okay. We can go. Finally, I want it. I want it to feel better. I'm at a place in my life where I can hear that. Um, but yes, there's usually been one person for many years bringing it up until they kind of say, forget it. I'm dropping the reins on this. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm thinking of sort of like three different ways I could sort of steer this because I have such curiosity around it. One is, is around core values, mm -hmm. you know, you know, two is around just communication style. Three yeah. is around like love language. You know, I know you talked about we give love the way we like to receive it. And I know that that's true. And I did do the five love languages. I think there's, it makes sense to me. I don't know if you think that is something valid, but gosh, I I found it useful, yeah. but it seems like there's various layers here. Um, I'll just let you go in the direction you think makes the most sense with all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about all those things because they're all so important. Um, yeah. On this idea of core values, I think a really interesting piece around that is that we often differ with our partner in way more ways than we would like to admit when we first get together. Those 20-year-old couples, you know, when I'm like, tell me about your relationship, they're like, we value the same things. And I'm like, wait, 15 years from now. <laughs> you do today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think you do because you both are really sweet with each other right now, but yeah. you do not value the same things. And um, again, more re there's other research that shows that this is true. Like 69% of our problems are based off of major personality or value differences and they'll never change. What you happens won't, are those core values, Liz? Like, cause that's what I think about. Like your core, like mine, I know for me is like family. Yeah. loyalty, integrity, like those are never going to change yeah. you know, where we chose to live. Like we're on the West coast, we're from the East coast. Will we move back? Like now that my parents are aging, I want to, but yeah. that could become an issue where, you know, my daughter and husband are so happy here. So there are different life things that come up, but that's not around, but that does align with a value for me though, family. Yes, exactly. So like the things there's, there's solvable problems and yeah. then there's Perpetual problems. Yes. Perpetual problems are related like completely opposite values, which actually isn't like a huge problem, right? It's not. 
That's what I wondered. You talk about it and you okay. can negotiate. It's a huge problem if people can't negotiate. And sometimes you can't. Like you're like, actually, if I negotiated on this, I would be a miserable human and I'm not going to do that. Most things people can negotiate on. Yeah. yeah. A really common one would be like a, friv- a frivolous spender versus a person who doesn't spend. One person, a core value for them is financial security. Like asking them not to have it is like asking them to give up their insights. Like they just can't yes. do it. Yes. And the other person, maybe a core value for them is adventure or play or whatever. And telling them you're not allowed to be an adventurous, playful person anymore. It's like giving up their insides. They will always have this difference. The couples though that I see in the office, what they've tried for many years to do is to get the other person to align with them. Oh yeah. Right? Like you, I'm going to spend whatever money I want. You're the problem. You're a penny pincher. And I don't like that. And you need to learn how to loosen up Mm. or you're frivolous. You, um, you waste money. I have to control the money or like you have to get a job. I'm not sharing my money with you or whatever it is. So it becomes this very binary thing. Mm -hmm. Family could be the same thing. Like you might both value family, but you actually might have different values. It might be like, I value big family. I value like, even if I had to live in the worst place on the planet, I would want to live there if it meant every one of my relatives was down the street. And somebody else might be like, I value nuclear family. I like us to be insular. I like us to have cozy Friday nights watching movies. The idea of your mother coming over every Saturday drives me nuts, Mm. right? Because we have different values. Mm. And a lot of people get stuck on like the surface level value. They might be like, yeah, we both value family or we both value financial security. Like, duh, neither of us wants to give up that. None of us right. wants to give up family. But you have to get deeper and you have to be like, what do we actually value with family? What do we value with money? Um, or any of a million other values that we have. And so often when I meet with couples who have been together a long time, they've become gridlocked and they are not negotiating. And it's like, no, I'm not moving to the East Coast, only staying here. I cannot believe you would even ask us to do that. What's wrong with you? Why why would you want to do that? Instead of saying, what's important about the East Coast to you? What's important about the West Coast to you? And is there a way that we can mold our lives so the most important core pieces are being met for both of us? Yeah. And I think, you know, with my partner, I mean, we've been together 22 years. I think there's he would, he knows how I feel about my family. So, but I did use it a little bit as an example, cause I know that it, it could be, and I don't know where, how we'll end up on that. I don't know that, yeah. you know, we like it here, you know, so there's so many layers to it. So when people come to see you though, Liz, do they want you to take sides? Like, I don't know how you do your job. You know, you said teaching wasn't for you, but I don't, I think it would be really hard to be in between. <laughs> All of that energy. I am. Um, I grew up in a really chaotic environment. So I like thrive. on. Yeah. You're like, I got this. I've seen it all. Yeah. I've got it. I can see how to get us on the same page. Um, you know, I think people at first think that's what therapy is, but I have not experienced too many people. Like once I set that boundary, trying to get me to take sides, I talked to them a lot about like, my job is not to decide if your value is more worthy than yours or to decide that your love language is more worthy than your love language. Like that's not my job. And I usually explain it in this way. If you were with another person on the planet, these things might not be a problem because they're not a problem before you met each other. They weren't a problem, right? Like you're mad at your husband for leaving his socks everywhere, but newsflash, until the age of 35, he lived leaving his socks everywhere. And like, he's it genuinely is like, okay for him to do this. So I'm not going to take a side saying like, you shouldn't leave socks on the floor because he survived or you're annoyed with your partner because she um, needs to get things done all the time and never chills like newsflash lived her life that the whole time this way. And it's always been okay. The problem is, is the way that you live together and you're not 
coordinating together. You're not considering each other in this film. It's not about making you different people. It's about figuring out how do you become more considerate, loving people to each other. Um, And when that happens, people are usually like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to try to get this lady to agree with me that my husband is a slob or that my, you know, partner is a B word or whatever it is like, because she's not, I'm not going to do it. And they just know that upfront. Yeah. And when you're talking about this, it seems like those could be like resentments that are sort of building. And so, you know, I asked about, um, or layered on with that other question. So we'll come back to in terms of communication. I mean, is one of the main reasons relationships fail because the communication just is non-existent. I mean, it seems to me if you can't at least hear the other person, yeah, you can't solve for what you can't take in. It seems to me, but I'd love your input on this. You're right. So um, it's interesting because the the main issues are about being self protective, and of course you want to protect yourself, but people become self-protective before they become relationally protective. Mm. And most people will swear up and down that they were being relationally protective. Like, oh, I thought I was doing the nice thing by not bringing up problems or whatever. But really deep down, most things are like, this is how I protect myself. Yeah. Either protect myself by not having conflict. So I become really people-pleasy and never bring anything up. Or I protect myself by being big and grandiose and yelling all the time and, you know, be heard <laughs> to be heard. Or I protect myself by avoiding and rolling my eyes every time somebody brings something up. Yeah. And so in a relational dynamic, you have to learn how to do both. And that's really complicated. It's not easy to be in a conflict and to say, I can see myself and I can still see you. Most people can only do one or the other. They're yes. like, I see your point of view. That's all I care about. I want all of this to stop. Yes, we'll do your thing. We'll move to the state you want to move to, or right. sure, take that position that's going to keep you out of the house for 60 hours a week. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to fight. Or they only see themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I want this. I need this. And I'm going to get it however I want. And I'm not going to care about your feedback here. Mm. So something that people work on in couples therapy is being able to stand assertively still and say, I know what I want. I know what I need. I know how I'm feeling about things. And I can express that to you, but I can express it to you with an openness to still see you as another human being who might disagree or might have your own feelings. And those are both okay. Yeah. So obviously communication is so important. What are some of the common reasons that relationships don't make it? So again, the life transitions, um, research has shown they're usually the thing that kicks off couples not making it. So we all know like the first couple of years after kids is a big period of divorce for people. That's a major life transition. Um, After the loss of a child, you know, if somebody dies, that's a huge trigger point for divorce. But what has been shown is it wasn't actually the loss. It was the way that the couple deals with the transition. Um, Empty nesters, they get divorced. So these life transitions usually kick that off. Um, And it's often because there wasn't the strong connection before, but whatever was going on in life kind of kept everything together. And then this they hit this ledge and because they hit the ledge, things can change. And they're like, okay, well, we can't be together. Now, why weren't things working after the transition or because of the transition, right? Like if you think back to when you first have kids, things don't work because you're not communicating well with each other. And we were talking about this before the show. One of the things that people tend to do is they start to utilize um, what's called the four horsemen um, in communication because it signals like the apocalypse of the relationship. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. why it's called that. Okay. Um, so yeah. Tell us about the four horsemen. Yes. Yeah. So in the 1970s, um, a researcher named John Gottman started to do research on couples. He put them in something called the love lab. And he also put them in apartments and he watched them in their apartments and he measured their, um, vital signs in the lab while they would have conversations. And 
he has followed thousands of couples in these different ways. And what was what showed up is that the couples who ended up divorcing as he followed them in their lives were couples who utilized something chronically called the four horsemen. And I say chronically because as I talk about them, anybody listening is going to be like, oh my God, I do these things. We all do these things. (laughs) He is learning how to stop yourself and not do it all the time. Okay. But couples who struggle, they use these four things when they have differences. And the four things are criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. Criticism is not when you're like giving a helpful critique. A lot of people are like, isn't like criticism helpful sometimes? Yeah. Not in the way I'm describing it. So criticism in this capacity is when you take a problem and you make it about the character of your partner. Our house is messy because you are lazy. Oh yeah, that's cruel. Yeah, got it. Kids are out of control. Yeah. Yeah, our kids are out of control because you never discipline them. So, and we all do this in small ways. We don't mean to be hurtful all Mm -hmm. the time, right? We're frustrated. Most people, when you track their criticism, it usually comes from having a need that was not met. And they feel like the only way they can do get it met is to be harsh. So maybe for a while they said, I really need help cleaning the kitchen. And then now it's become, you're always a slob, right? You never always and never are keywords that people use when they're criticizing. So you can catch yourself. Yeah. Defensiveness is when you don't take responsibility for your part. And Mm -hmm. even if your part is small, so somebody comes to you and says, our kitchen's a mess. I'm so exhausted by this. Instead of taking responsibility for your part and being like, yeah, it is a mess. And I've not touched that sink in days. That's like, it's not, you're a bad person. Just like, let's look at reality. Yeah. Dad, what a defensive person in that moment will say is they will either punt back the criticism. Well, this sink is a mess, but have you looked at your car recently? Or they will become a victim. Why are you so mean to me? You're always picking on me. Hmm. Or they will justify. What do you expect? I worked all week. I work really hard. How am I supposed to get to the dishes? right? So like there's this explanation and this justification, um, or they'll dismiss it. You're such, you're being a nag. Like what's the big deal? Who cares? We we don't have mice. There's no problem with the dishes in the sink, right? right? So they kind of dismiss the issue. Yeah. They diminish it. They diminish it. The four, the third thing that people do is something called stonewalling. Yeah. Um, and you can see that these are escalatory. So usually like if somebody's critical, then somebody's going to be defensive. If that happens for a long time, then what happens is something called stonewalling. Stonewalling is exactly as it sounds. It's when somebody is like a stonewall. So you're talking to them, you're telling them something important and they're like arms are crossed and they're looking away or like shaking their foot, but they're not contributing to the mm. conversation. For the person speaking, it's so frustrating and it feels incredibly disrespectful. Like, why don't you care what I'm saying? Why don't you talk to me? Usually for the person stonewalling, their experience is that they are what's called flooded. And so they are feeling incredibly stressed in the interaction. You might even notice that when someone's flooded, their mouth starts to have like that clicky, nervous sound when they're talking. Um, or they are shaking their legs. They're trying to calm themselves down in the office. I actually measure their heart rate. So I have everybody hooked up to a heart rate thing while we do therapy. And anytime the heart rate goes to a certain point, we actually stop because at that point, people are either going to become really nasty or they're going to become really frozen. And so when wow. people are stonewalling, you're good, Liz. It's <laughs> so interesting. Okay. It's really interesting yeah. and it's because what happens in those moments is this thing goes off and it tells them their heart rate has escalated and their partner can see, oh my God, this is a physical thing happening for them. They're not just a jerk. And wow. I can say, you know, look, your, your partner started saying all of this stuff, like yelling just now but that's because their body feels out of control or your partner isn't talking right now, but that's because they're totally shut down. Mm. 
And when that, when somebody is stonewalling, their partner wants to say more. They want a reaction. They want want a reaction. Make them talk. Yeah. They're going to keep pushing until that person gives them something. Yeah. It doesn't work. All it does is raise the heart rate more. And so the the person who goes into a collapsed state, which is stonewalling, they cut off more. Um, so yeah, we, we look at that so that we can identify, yeah, this isn't okay. Your partner needs to learn not to get this way. Um, but there, there's nothing that can be said that's going to change it. Mm. And then the final is contempt, um, which is criticism supercharged. So contempt is when we are coming from a one up position. So criticism, we're still peers. I'm not being completely nice, but I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, you never clean the dishes. Why don't you do that? Contempt is you are not my peer. You are beneath me. So um, thank God your mom's not alive to see the way that you've managed our money or. um, That's hurtful. Yeah. Really like hurtful, belittling things. Or of course, of course you talk to me like that because I've watched your father talk before and that's how your dad talks to your mother. Mm. Or I'm not surprised that you lost your job. I mean, look at the way you manage everything in our lives. So it's this very belittling one-up position. Um, Usually that comes from either a lot of resentment. So you see that a lot in people where there's been an affair the betrayed partner becomes really contemptuous yeah, um, sense. and it's hard to get out of that. You also see it a lot in people who have had like unfair mental load distribution for too mm-hmm. long. Yeah. So a partner did everything for the family all the time and their partner never cared and contempt tipping point. Yeah. Tipping point. Or you see it in a person where it was modeled. So their parents talked like that. Yeah. It, you can't trace it back. You're like, what happened in the relationship for you to talk to your partner this way? And then you ask, um, how did your parents talk to each other? And it's like, oh, okay, this is where it came from. You're you're mimicking what you saw. Um, but those, so those four things, when they're happening, every time there's a conflict, people get worn out. And there's this distance and isolation cascade where they just get more and more distant from each other. They're like, I'm not even going to bother bringing this up anymore. Um, And they don't solve problems and they don't move forward together. And they either get divorced or they stay together, but they're really like kind of emotionally divorced, but they're together. Yeah. Okay. And when you were kind of describing some of this, I was thinking, I wonder how much your childhood experiences and what you internalize impacts how you show up in a relationship. Either you go opposite to what you witnessed because you really didn't like that or you do the same thing. Yeah. So a lot of childhood stuff comes up all over the place. Like with the four horsemen, if you have a partner who's very defensive and it's not tracking in the relationship, like sometimes that happens because Somebody's just been continually critical and it's like, I have to defend myself here. Right. Yeah. But if it's not making sense in the relationship, maybe that came from a highly critical parent where like they were just having grenades thrown at them all the time. Mm. And they're kind of in this space where it's like, I I have to protect myself. Like I can't old. take that's an old wound being poked at. Old wound. So we talk a lot like when something isn't tracking in the relationship, we go to that place of what about this feels familiar and Mm. listeners can actually ask, ask yourself that question. If you have this conflict with somebody where somebody's always where you get critical or you get defensive, or you fight about the same things in a certain way, ask like, where, where does this feel familiar? And be really honest with yourself because that can help you to change. Cause you can say, I kind of sound like my parent right now and the way I'm talking to my partner or when my partner brings up a concern, it feels familiar because everyone was so critical to me growing up and that really hurt. My partner's not trying to hurt me, but I'm really sensitive to that. So how can I be a little more resilient so I can like hear what they have to say instead of getting defensive? Um, Another place that that childhood stuff shows up is the core values. Um, and personality traits. So when we're growing up, we experience things and we say to ourselves, 
we either have like a legacy dream with the things we experience or an extinction dream with the things we experience. So you might grow up with no money in your family. So you might think I am never going to live this way when I grow up. So I'm going to save money and I'm going to be on top of my bills and da, 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 da. Then you're in all these conflicts because your partner's like, can we please go on a vacation? We have enough money to do it. And you're like, no, that's irresponsible. But that's because at a young age, you decided I am going to be responsible. Survival. It's survival in some way, right? It's a protective thing. Exactly. So that's like an extinction dream that, but you could grow up in the same scenario and have a different way of being. You could grow up with money and you could be like, I like this. Like (laughs) I, I, my family, because we don't have money, we're creative and we're really close and we're not snobs. And so you grow up and you have a partner who is like, I want us to have more money. I need that. And then, you know, your partner has decided I liked my family. I have a legacy I want to continue, which is like money doesn't matter to me. We don't need it. We can be happy without it. And so you get in these conflicts um, and, and you could have the same background, but have a different idea of whether you wanted to continue that background or get rid of it. Oh, it's fascinating. And I've actually had guests on the show who've written books about different topics like money and stuff. And yeah. for sure, you see how that's played out where they've gone opposite or they've They've Gone doubled the down on it. Yeah, it's all, it's actually good. It's so fascinating. Um, what are some ways that couples can work on the communication so they don't end up in this four horsemen where an occasional criticism, you know, might be a reflexive thing that, you know, flies out of their mouth, but it's not a chronic thing that's leading them down a different path that they want to be going. So there, what yeah. are some communication tools that you can help us learn? Well, first of all, if you catch yourself, just own it. So we're all human. It's much better to say, whew, I was just being super defensive. Can I try again? Mm. Than it is just to keep doubling down and being defensive. <laughs> <laughs> so if you- I'm going to be right, damn it. That's it. Yeah, I'm going to be right. I, yeah. I'm already on this track. I mean, I have a hard yeah. time with that, where in my head I'm like, shut up, Liz. Like, why do you keep talking? But, you know, you can't help back, it. Yeah. I just keep going. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I get that. Like if you catch yourself being critical or defensive yeah. or any of these things, just oh, just say it. Mm. I, ouch. I think I was just really critical to you. Can I try again? Yeah. If you don't catch it until three days later, come back to it. I, you know, I wanted to talk about the dirty kitchen the other day and I was really nasty to you the way I said it. And I'm sorry. Here's what I actually wanted to say. Yeah. So The second thing that I always suggest is narrate your inside world instead of throwing daggers. And what I mean by that is like, if you want to yell at the person, say you want to yell at them instead of yelling at them. Like, I am so mad. I want to yell at you right now. So I'm going to go in the other room or I want to be defensive right now. The things you're saying to me, I, I am truly about to defend myself. And I know that's not going to help. So say what you're about to do before you do it, because then mm-hmm. people are much more understanding. They're like, okay, I don't want you to do that. Go take a break or right. like, let's not yell. Let's take a moment. Oh, wow. That's the thing that is really important is learning this physiological part. Mm-hmm. Conflict is a very small percentage of conflict is up in our brains. But everything we learn about resolving it is about cognitive stuff. Here's what you should say. Here's how you should think. Here's how you can approach it. But most of what makes our conflict go off the rails has to do with us feeling threatened. Mm. If you don't feel threatened, and you can test this out, think about all your relationships. Critical to your best friend when they do the same thing. Yeah. Right? Because your body doesn't feel that. Your body doesn't feel all that like rage that's making you into fight or flight. It's it's like, okay, you canceled our date. Like, whatever. I'll see you next week. No big deal. Your partner says, I, I don't have time to do what we were supposed to do today. And you become critical or defensive or you stonewall them or whatever. That's because your body is flooded. And so learning how to recognize those signs is my heart racing? 
am I having a tough time breathing? Am I having trouble accessing my actual words? So things are just flying out of my mouth. And how do I calm my body down before I talk about this? Yeah. And we don't talk to people about that enough. We don't talk to people and we give a lot of tips, but we don't talk enough about like, you're probably going to have to wait 20 minutes for all the stress to dump out of your bloodstream. That's just a fact. So Mm, the cortisol cortisol spiking, is that what's happening literally like in your body? Yes. Cortisol is spiking. Then what starts to happen is your nervous system starts to react. When your nervous system reacts, it starts to prime your body to be ready for survival. Wow. And a survival body and a survival brain doesn't do relational things. Relational things only happen when we feel safe. So when we start to feel unsafe, no matter how you might be like, oh, but it's so silly. Why would I feel unsafe about our argument about the dishes? Well, you do because you see that as like a threat to getting your needs met, right? Mm -hmm. So it hasn't been met for a long time or whatever. When people are in that state, the things that help us be good communicators go away because the things that help us be good communicators are humor, um, a calm tone of voice. Yes um, affection. Yeah. Curiosity. You cannot do any of those things in survival mode because if you're being chased by a tiger, you're not going to make a joke with the tiger. You're not going to offer a hug. You're just going to run or play dead. And so when we get into conflict, our biggest error is that we keep trying to talk when we're in survival mode, Mm. because you're not going to be a you're not going to, you're not going to be fair to your partner. You're not going to ask them questions. You're not going to problem solve. Anytime they try to make a joke to deescalate, you're going to say, what was funny about that? And nothing's going to move forward. (laughs) It's all so relatable. You know what I mean? Everyone's going to go, oh yeah, I've done that. Or I've been on the other end of that. We all do. And so if you're saying stuff like human, and like you said, we won't do it with our friends though, would be like, because they're not threatening. No, exactly. Why don't we do it with our friends? Because why? We're not threatened by it. We don't live yeah. with them. Yeah, now, yeah. if a friend does it, hurts you all the time. Yeah, that's different. You might get threatened by it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, your primary person is going to be the person you feel the most threat response from when you yes. can't get what you want. And um, you're not, you cannot be a relatable person when you are in fight, flight, or freeze. You just cannot be yeah. because. It's just about getting your needs met. You're going to become really myopic and really self-focused and it's not going to go anywhere. So the best thing you can learn is if you start saying things to your partner, like that wasn't funny or no, I don't want to be touched or I don't want to solve this problem or I don't care what your point of view is. What that means is you actually need to stop for 20 minutes because you're, you, you're too stressed to have the conversation. Um, and then is you can it, come back. Is it okay if somebody leaves the house? Like I have a friend, she's like, Oh, I was like, I, I don't think that's bad that your husband left Did come back calmer. And she's like, yes. I'm like, well, maybe that's good, but I think yeah. it could feel scary. Somebody yeah, walks so, out the door. Cause you mentioned earlier going into another room. Yeah. So sometimes so, somebody's walking out the door and driving or going for a walk. Right. For sure. And like, any of the things that we need in those moments can feel really threatening on both ends. You know, maybe your friend is actually uh, being felt as threatening to their partner because your friend might be saying, talk to me more. Where are you going? You're not allowed to leave. So then that person is becoming escalated in their own way, which is to shut down, obviously. And then your friend is feeling threatened by the abandonment and is like, no, talk to me. And they're becoming more escalated. But that separation and that space is really important. The problem is, and this is probably the issue with their partner, is it can't be seen as abandonment or a punishment. And often it's like, you're crazy. I'm leaving until you cool off. But it's the person leaving who might need to be cooling off. Is that it? Yeah. But like, it's like, if you're saying it in that way to somebody. Yeah. That's not helpful. It's going to hurt. And then they're going to 
feel more threatened and they're going to say, don't you dare leave. How could you leave me? This right. is so their, their vulnerability is going to get triggered and then it's going to even, yeah, it's disconnecting even maybe what escalated it in the first place. It becomes yeah, a different issue. Yeah, it, it hurts. hurts. And so you have to decide beforehand when we get off track, we agree that we can take space and we agree that if you leave and go for a drive or whatever, that that's okay. That doesn't mean you're leaving me. But the person who needs to leave has to make it very clear ahead of time or in the moment. When I go for my drive, I will always come back. Because even if you've been married for 40 years, your fear, the human fear of abandonment, mm, it's not primitive, rational. Right? It's Yeah, it's, it's primitive. rooted. So yeah. it's not like your brain is going to go, oh, we've been married for 40 years. Of course, they always <laughs> come back. It's going to be okay. Yeah. In that moment, you're feeling disrespected and abandoned and as if this issue is never going to be resolved. Yeah. You want to get it resolved. And now the person is yeah. physically leaving. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. yeah. And so you have to agree ahead of time. That way, when your partner goes for a drive, you're like, okay, I know this means that they needed a break to calm down. The second piece is that you need to build a habit with each other that when they come back, you do talk about things. If every time they come back, they then ignore you, then every time they leave, it's going to be a trigger of, of course, my thing's never going to be resolved. So your friend's partner needs to come home and say, I'm calm now. Let's talk. Yes. If they don't do that, then leaving was avoidance. Ah, yes. And that's not fair. And that's not solving anything because then that's breaking down the communication further. Um, You're going to have to come back, Liz, because I have like 50 more questions and we're like (laughs) coming to the end of our time. What what didn't I ask you today that you want to make sure the women hear and take away from this conversation? I think you asked some great questions. I think my, my biggest takeaway for people is always that with all of this, relationships are messy and our partner, everyone is annoying on the planet. So your partner is annoying. You are annoying. We are all problems. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that the way to have a fulfilling relationship is to have a willingness to have a fulfilling relationship. And having that willingness means really being able to look at yourself and be willing to work on what you need to work on in the moment, not holding this idea of I'll be better once they are better. You know, I'll be more affectionate once they're more affectionate. I will be friendlier once they're less defensive, whatever it is. Just having a willingness that you're going to do the thing that makes relationships feel better. That's your part that you can do. Yes. But the other piece of this, and we talked about this earlier, but it's so important especially for women, is that you have this willingness to be the type of partner you want to be, even when things aren't perfect. But I also want you to have a willingness to be good to yourself. And what that means is that even when it's really hard, that you're able to say, I'm willing to be a good partner to you and fair. And I'm willing to say this really hard thing right now, which is like, no, or I have a need or there's something I want, or there's something I'm unhappy with. You have to be able to advocate for yourself. Both parts matter. Um, And I I think that's what I want to leave people with. I have loved this conversation. And I just wrap it up just with a fun one, which is what's your definition of a good life since the show is called The Good Life? (laughs) What does that that mean to you, Liz? What does that mean to you? Oh, I think for me... I love my life. So I'll just think about my own life. I think a good life for me is being willing. I love that word willing because it means that you're just open to it. It doesn't mean you have to feel a certain way all the time, but being willing to have any experience in your life be an enriching experience. Um, And what that means for me is like in the past, a crappy date was still an enriching experience for me. Um, like I've gone through some significant losses or trauma, but I've tried to think without being toxic positivity, but like, what about this is enriching? Like I've gotten to feel like sorrow, like that's hard, but I'm so lucky that I got to feel sorrow in my life. Um, 
you know, I'm up all night. I have a baby right now. You know this. I'm up all night. What's enriching about it? <laughs> but that's that's how I try to live a good life is like not everything's going to be good, but most things can in some way be enriching to me or to the people around me. Thank you so much. I loved this conversation. If you're willing, I would love for you to come back on, do a part two at some yeah, point. And, and I'd love to tackle too, you know, there's a lot of women in the community who are single, either having lost a partner or divorce or haven't found that person in midlife. So I would love to get your expertise. Um, all of the show notes for today will be over at thegoodlifecoach.com. I'm going to link Liz's website, her book, all her social media, but share this with your friends. I mean, I think we need to be having these conversations and to be learning. And Liz, um, I'm going to direct them to your book. Any other books, you know, you went through the Gottman Institute, anything else that you recommend if somebody wants to dig deeper on relationships? Yeah. Yeah. Any of the Gottman books, there are many. So I just recommend typing in John Gottman, Julie Gottman, and you'll see their books. Um, I recommend Fair Play by Eve Rotsky. I think it's super important. It's talking about the division of labor in a home and how you can divide it so you're not resentful anymore. Um, I love Esther Perel's books. There was a book that just came out called Sex Talks, which I think is really good. Um, And it guides couples through talking about sex in a way that feels very relatable and real and not lofty and, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. So I would say that those are my, my current recommendations for people. Okay. And I'm obviously I'll be listing your book, which, um, why don't you tell us the name of your book and the website? I'll have it over at the goodlifecoach.com, but give us, give us your handles. So of course I recommend my book too, which is, I want this to work. And next year I have a book coming out as well. That is about the impact of stress on relationships. Um, when is that coming out? You need to come back and talk about that fall 2024. So, okay, so you'll be back we'll more about it then. Yes. Um, and my website is Elizabeth Earnshaw.com. So it's just my name. It's easy. Perfect. And again, it just, yes, everything will be over at the goodlifecoach.com with all the show notes and all the, the links. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I've learned so much and I know my audience has as well. So thank you for your thank time. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks Liz. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.